Welcome to the Healing Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Renee Beale. With yet another Omicron wave upon us in Australia, the COVID-19 pandemic seems far from over. Whether we like it or not, we're going to be living with the virus and its effects for some time yet. To talk about how we got here and how we move forward from here, today I'm joined by Professor Catherine Bennett and Associate Professor Hassan Vali from Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation. Both have deep expertise in infectious disease epidemiology, are accomplished teachers in public health, and have been highly sought after experts by the media throughout the pandemic. Catherine has become known as the voice of reason since the beginning of the pandemic, so far contributing to in excess of 20,000 COVID-19 related media items while Hassan has penned numerous opinion pieces and provided much appreciated explainers to the general public. In this episode, we'll discuss the current situation, critical lessons learned, and our preparedness for future pandemics, if and when they occur. Join us now in the conversation. Welcome, Catherine and Hassan. Hi, Renee. Hello. So let's begin with what's currently unfolding in Australia. Does this Omicron wave feel different from the last ones? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've moved into what some of us were calling from late 21, the transition period. So we've moved from being pre-vaccination, holding on until we could get the vaccine rolled out and so that we could keep infection rates as low as we possibly could to that actual rollout that happened for the eastern states in the middle of a Delta outbreak. And then just as we got those vaccination rates up to to great levels nationally, to be hit by Omicron. So it was interesting because at the time we were saying, how frustrating, you know, this was meant to be the transition to the time where we would expect to see transmission still happening in the population but at low levels. Omicron changed that. But in a way it really just forced us further and faster down that transition track because you couldn't hold the virus back anymore. It was now more infectious, more immune escape. And the good news was at least with high vaccination rates and some extra protection from boosters that we could manage this as safely as we did. So it's been a difficult time because we've had to adjust to high death rates, Um, low death rates per, per capita, but high numbers of deaths because we've got so many more people infected at the same time. Many people speak about having pandemic fatigue and just wanting to get on with life and go about business as usual. Did letting our guard down contribute to or bring on this new wave? Um, Yeah, look, I I think it's probably an oversimplification to view it in those terms. I think um, I agree with Catherine, we're very much in a transition phase at the moment and things are pretty messy. You know, we were always going to see um, waves when we, when we had these new variants that were able to escape the immune system and that was, that was going to be unavoidable. Um, so whilst I, I think there are definitely lessons that could be learnt and we, there were things we could have done better, I don't think we we're ever going to be able to avoid the, these waves and, um, you know, this transition period is adjusting to the fact that we have um, a lot of disease circulating and a lot of disease circulating when we're living probably closer to normal than we have at any time since March 
2020, but the risk calculus has changed because we have vaccinations, we have antivirals. Um, and so we're in a very different position to where we are in 2020. So, you know, I think um, there are things that we will learn for the next time, but, you know, I, I don't think we can characterise it simply as letting our guard down. Sounds sensible. So back in April, Catherine, you wrote in the Age newspaper that we've now have lived experiments on a grand scale that can be reviewed and compared in detail to understand the strengths and the weaknesses in managing the dynamics of disease transmission, um, the entire health response, and also the wider impacts of these approaches. What have we learned from previous waves and are we now putting this into action to better manage these waves coming up? I actually think there's a hundred years of research to be done to actually learn everything we possibly can out of what has gone on. As Hassa said, it's been really complex. And so everything's been shifting. You know, our, our levels of knowledge, even over the first weeks of the pandemic, were shifting massively week, week on week. And so you have to kind of understand what was done and how impactful it was in the context of what was known at the time as well. Because if you're looking ahead, you've got to understand what the triggers are or how you respond to scant information or what the precautionary principle looks like based on the lived experience we've had this time. What can we take from that to get better at going ahead? I think a lot of us have talked a lot about this, you know, over the last two years, but I do think there's great richness in the data. And I think that was probably part of that story um, back from earlier this year was really trying to build resolve and build resources needed to go back and look at the data. We did a lot of modelling work throughout the pandemic. It was quite critical at different times where we didn't quite know where things were heading, but we could compare different strategies, we could make policy decisions. But we tended to then stay with that and not do the detailed analysis of patterns of transmission. There was some chains of transmission analysis, but not the normal analytic work we would do as epidemiologists. So there's data there that can be unpacked out of what is often textual records of interviews and so on, but that would really help us understand how a virus moves through the community. And it's been difficult to this point because we've been so much in the moment and trying to respond. And where there were attempts to question, it was often done with a tone of blame or, you know, people being defensive about decisions made, or we're still in the middle of trying to garner public health um, behaviours in, in, the, in the broader community. And so it's very complicated. But as, as we start to move away from that immediacy, I think we absolutely have to look in detail in the, in the data to get the best lessons going ahead. And we've learnt things like it's as important to decide when you go into restrictions as it is to decide when you come out. And, you know, thinking ahead about what triggers look like, even if you don't know all the metrics, but actually having a, a decision-making process around pandemic responses will be, you know, one of many really important um, benefits. So we've learnt a lot and some of that will take shape in governance structures. We've seen changes of law about how um, pandemic responses are, are playing out. We, um, we're looking at the finally, you know, <laughs> the development of a, a, a CDC-type independent authority to bring together our critical capacity so we can 
respond quickly. So there's a lot that's already coming out of it, but I still think there's so much embedded right down to the data level that, uh, that we really do need to invest in that. Hassan, I just wanted to um, talk to you around a, an article you wrote in The Conversation actually published in June this year where you explained why relying on vaccination to achieve herd immunity has become more mathematically impossible as the pandemics progressed. Looking at the data collected so far and I guess making some predictions about the behaviour of the virus moving forward, are future waves inevitable? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the, the one big unknown that we have to come to terms with is the potential for new variants. And, you know, what, what we're seeing is that these new variants are able to evade um, immunity that has been achieved, you know, in the early part of or in, in, in the pandemic up until this point. And so if, if you're going to have variants emerge and you're going to have them with this ability to evade immunity, then waves of infection are inevitable. And that's kind of what we've seen throughout the pandemic so far. And of course, on, on top of that, we have this issue of waning immunity to grapple with and we have vaccines that aren't perfect. They're very good. They, they've performed better than we would have ever imagined. And I'm still in the camp that is amazed that we had vaccines in the first place and that they were able to be delivered to the population so quickly. But, you know, I, I think as we look ahead, you know, what we would hope to see is what looks to be transpiring now where either the virus will become a seasonal virus or we'll see these waves of lower and lower amplitude. And then, of course, we see that decoupling between um, infection and severe disease. So, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the best guess is we're, we're going to be facing these waves for, for some time to come. But, you know, every time we think we've got a handle on what's going to happen, um, this pandemic surprises us. So, you know, I guess we'll all be anxiously watching to see what happens next. One thing that's been a bit reassuring as we start to learn about patterns and, um, one of them was that places like South Africa, not necessarily the place where some of these subvariants started, but certainly early detection starts there because they have had high infection rates, they had low vaccination rates, but good testing, good genomic work being done. And we knew about the latest variants we've been dealing with here, BA4 and 5, in January and February in, in South Africa. And to me, the really reassuring thing is we haven't heard anything else since. So I want to move on now to some other territory. So you've both been in really high demand to share your expertise with government and also more broadly the general public throughout the pandemic. What have you learned about the role of academics in partnering with other stakeholders and communicating to the public during a global health emergency? Yeah, look, I think... Um you know, by and large, academics have done an amazing job over the last two and a half years and, um, you know, they've really stepped up to the plate to, um, to be that bridge between science um, and the community. And, you know, I, th I, I feel like um, we've all learnt a lot over this period um, as to um, how to communicate more effectively um, and, you know, I guess my, my hope is that um, 
you know, universities as well as academics realise um, how important this role is, not just during a public health emergency, but um, in the business as usual of being an academic. And it's not something that um, tends to get a lot of focus or a lot of reward at universities. Um, so, you know, I definitely um, feel very proud to have been part of the academic community who have um, played such an important role in, you know, reassuring, um, explaining, sometimes um, sort of advocating um, and, you know, the, the trust that the community has in academics um, has also, um, it, it's always been reasonably high, but I think it's really improved over this period. And we're, we're obviously living in this post-truth world where, you know, expertise and, um, and um, authority are, are questioned to a greater degree than probably has ever happened before. Um, and there are lots of forces that um, are undermining uh, you know, th that expertise. So, you know, I think it's been um, a really positive experience. And I, and I know I've, I've felt very um, privileged to, to be able to um, have an opportunity to play that role. So that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. There was a survey that I just saw reported this week looking at people's trust in science. And that's been something where, you know, often the naysayers will come into and say, well, no one trusts scientists anymore because they don't like to hear the facts because they contradict their ideology. But um, interestingly, the survey shows that Australians' trust of science is as high as ever and over 90% and, and great, though there is a distrust and I think a healthy distrust of what's heard on social media. But it does actually mean how academics interact in some of those other spaces like social media is interesting. And I think some of that's become a bit weird, you know, to be honest. Um, while it's an immediate avenue, it's also something that um, is has, has morphed through this and it's become quite personal at times and um, less about data. And I think we've all sort of filled a slightly different niche area. Just to add to what Hass said as well, I think I think we've created some new areas of intersection between academia and media. I know now media will come to me and, and be interested in what data they can seek to do some analysis work or I've worked with them on their data visualisation or they've come to us to see what research we're doing so that they can get it out as quickly as possible, things that just traditionally never happened. So there's been some opportunities with this but I think reimagining how we can work together from both sides and, and I talk a lot with the journalists that I work with about this because they've never seen anything like it and we haven't either. I've done media throughout my career but nothing like this. So, so that has been really, really valuable. But I do think we have different roles to play as well and sometimes the media are a bit selective about who they use and sometimes that creates another discussion about media biases and so on. But I think, you know, if I had to define our roles, you know, I think um, here I'm now speaking for Hassan, but but fantastic at communicating risk and puts a lot of thought into that and the science behind it, as well as then that interface with, with understanding and trying to convey that. You know, I think my strength right from the start um, was my field epi training, which we've both had, but um, I looked at the data in incredible detail. I was doing my own analysis. I was sitting in on every 
press conference that happened in any state that was having an outbreak every day and, and right through the question time and sometimes talking with the journalists who were in the room, you know, about the questions that we needed to, to get answers to that would help us understand the epidemiology in a different way. And then that's what I conveyed was the analysis. Now, it didn't stop you being pilloried by people who thought that actually by presenting the science you were somehow taking sides or, um, you know, either castigating or blindly supporting whoever the policymakers were in question. But at the same time, I do think people did play different roles and sometimes it was hard because you'd be lumped in the same basket and I don't think I could have done my role if I was not apolitical. You know, I had to stay away from the politics. And yet sometimes the media for their own agenda or their own you know, view of what a good story was tried to draw you into the politics. And I would call them on it and I would say, I can't do this if I'm political. Now, you know, if someone doesn't agree with what you're saying or it doesn't fit their narrative they will paint you however you want and they will, it will always be the opposite to their position. So we've had a very divisive conversation and, and people pushed into corners. But the reality is the majority of scientists, coming back to Hassan's point, you know, actually played a really straight bat. You know, they worked to the evidence, they worked to the data and they stayed in the middle and that's the hardest place to be because you're always sort of drawn into a corner where there's a whole group of supporters but staying in the middle and, and particularly when a story and the data and the science is changing daily, you know, people could say, well, that's not what you said two months ago. They say, well, it's a different variant now. So I do think it's been a hard challenge to stay true to the science, stay in the middle, stay apolitical and and to do all of that while you're actually being cursed by some as if you're not doing that you know so it's 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 a difficult thing so we had to develop not thicker skin but we had to I guess be really philosophical about how we understood our role and how we committed to that to put up with some of the tough stuff that comes with that kind of exposure and that kind of interaction that isn't typical and probably won't be beyond this and and I was just going to pick up on something and I guess It'll be for others, including Catherine, to be the judge of this. But, you know, I, I've been very deliberate in the tone that I've taken in my all of my communications and um, have aimed to be honest and direct, but also um, be very measured and um, look, look for messages that are reassuring as well as um, not sort of papering over some really hard truths that needed to be communicated and I and I think um, you know some of what Catherine's has been addressing is that the, the tone of your messaging is really important and um, I don't think everyone has got quite got that right and there's been a lot of division um, and a lot of confusion um, out there but um, you know I've felt that that was a really um, important um, role that I wanted to play in a, an important way that I wanted to um, convey my messaging, um, you know, with that with that that very conscious, calming and measured tone. And it's been hard. It's been the hardest place to occupy. I think people call people like us COVID centrists. Um, it's very easy to occupy the extreme positions and to um, it's almost easier to um, to to have overly simplistic messages rather than be in the nuance and to communicate complex ideas, which at times 
um, seem contradictory or can change as the evidence changes. So, um, look, it's been a fantastic learning experience and um, it's been challenging, but I've, like, loved every moment of it. And, and I must say, it also reminds me how important it is the people that have gone out of their way to provide feedback. And this is particularly from the experts. You know, there are times where you're the only voice out there and everyone's kind of step back because it's got a bit difficult um, or a bit nasty at times, you know, but they'll write to you or phone you or, you know, support you sometimes publicly but mainly, you know, offline where they would just feedback about the rigour of the science or the approach or or the tone, you know, <laughs> and and I, I can't say how important that is. And I think, you know, it was actually one of your comments right at the start today, someone you were talking about being proud to be an academic. And it was one of the first bits of feedback I had from a very senior academic at another university, the other side of the country for me, who I didn't know, who wrote to me and just said, I heard you, I heard you on the ABC today and it made me proud to be an academic in this country. And that was amazing. And that happened early on. But during the tough times, particularly when we were in lockdown and there was a lot of, everyone was so um, anxious about it individually, um, businesses, the whole works. But every day I had people write and it might be a very senior person in our field who's an expert edu- a communicator saying, you know, you're, you're pitch perfect, you're, you're fantastic, bravo. Or it might be someone writing to you to tell you what it means to them as they sit isolated in their house with their two kids who have nowhere to go or someone with mental health issues or another, you know, expert in your specific field who writes to you and says, you know, you've got such a good understanding of this and you have a, a you know, a technical conversation about the data or whatever. But it was that connection with both the world, with the industry world as well, all the other contexts so you can see the bigger picture but also our own professions so that it, it kept you going because there are times where you could feel out on a limb and you wouldn't be sure, you know, anymore. <laughs> you sort of lose your, your perspective. And so I think for every person who was in front of a, of a camera or a microphone or writing that it was their support networks and some of those people were people that never came in, at, you know, in public themselves but who were really critical, I think, to, to helping support that messaging and that analysis that sits behind it. So just picking up on that actually and kind of related to this, not from a political perspective but from a communication to the general public perspective, as epidemiologists, do you aim to communicate the facts without influencing people or do you also aim to motivate people through the information you provide to behave in certain ways to protect the health of the community as a whole? Since I'd imagine there's subtle differences in the way that you might communicate information between those two and perhaps it's a bit of a balance. My approach has always been to use the evidence to support decision-making. So I think the risk is if you just want to encourage behaviour that you start to focus on the behaviour and then you might support it with evidence, whereas I try and tell the story of the evidence and then use that to support the behaviour. And I do think, you know, that's about people making informed choices and I personally think that that's a better approach and one that fits more with our fundamental principles in public health. Um, I can't think of an example where you didn't want to influence behaviour with the evidence you're giving, but that said, the complexity though is where you know that by explaining a certain thing, 
like, and I'm going to come back to something that was quite controversial at the time in favour of Wilby, which was the use of curfews in Victoria. That was, even at the time, kind of described in a way that it was really about policing other measures. It wasn't about the curfews per se, but it was presented as if it was about the curfews. So you had to be careful when you were talking about it because they would sort of put it out there, well, that's what the science says, and the science didn't say that. And even other chief health officers in other states, you know, said there is no evidence. So there wasn't evidence, but you have to be careful that you're not undermining the public health directors. So that's a bit different. That's not about trying to influence behaviour or not. It's it's trying to find the fine line between between saying, well, I can't defend it from a science point of view, but if if that's what they're doing is to actually make sure that they've got some enforcement behind other restrictions that, that do have an evidence base or are important, then then that's where it's coming from. So so I do think sometimes you, you, you're juggling it a little bit because, you know, we might have moved away from evidence for a certain thing, but you don't want to undermine it. Other times, though, we'll, we'll call it. When we um, looked at vaccine mandates in workplaces, they very much had a place initially. We had a Delta variant circulating. We knew that the vaccines not only reduced risk of serious disease but could also um, minimise risk of transmission and that was really important. Um, it did wane but you had these periods where you did have a remarkable effect and even when it waned we're still talking about 50% reduced risk of infection. So, so there was a real argument about that. But then Omicron came along and shifted everything as did the number of people that had infections. That started to level playing fields. And so the evidence did change. And yet we still had some places for some time, in fact still do, where you have mandates around two doses. So again, there it was, to my mind, something where actually you were trying to communicate it to the authorities that the science argument had now fallen away. And so sometimes it's not about the public behaviour. You're actually focusing on the policymakers to help them understand that the science story has changed and that, you know, some of these things need to be rethought. Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree. And I guess um, just reflecting on what Catherine um, has just said, I guess I, for me I've had that focus on writing a little bit more, particularly of late. And there is, whilst evidence always has to be the foundation of any communication that you make in this sort of situation, um, I think there have been times where I've been very disciplined about um, explaining things and then letting people make the choice. Um, and then there have been times where, um, you know, I've really aimed to influence people's behaviour um, and that's not in a way that is sort of shoving an idea down people's throats, but it is by um, communicating the evidence clearly. Um, but I, you can't deny that I, I have um, an objective or an agenda um, based on my public health training and what I think is best for the individual and the community. So um, I think it is really good and important to understand why you're communicating and understanding um, what your objectives are and where they sit on the explaining versus influencing spectrum. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, it's all of all of that. So, um, but I, but I, once again, everything I've done, especially in the writing has been very deliberate and that has been part of my thinking process. As I've put things together, I've always asked my question, well, why am I doing this? What, what do I hope to achieve? How can I make things better? Um, and sometimes it has very clearly just been in explaining something that's, that people don't understand. And sometimes it's been um, trying to influence behaviour a bit more 
um, and be, be a bit more on that spectrum. And I think that's become more important more recently as we have moved away from rules is about trying to encourage that. And I like your distinction between someone's own behaviour but also the, the, the sort of public health good. And I think more recently that's where I have been really trying to encourage people to think about others on public transport, people who are very vulnerable, can't get around if they're not on public transport, but you choose to not wear a mask because you no longer care, but you're more likely to have the virus than them. You're more likely as a, a, a to be an emitter of the virus. You wearing a mask makes a difference to them regardless of, you know, their mask wearing. So I do think there are times where you have to also speak more broadly about kind of public health and how we have to work together on these things. But it also reminded me during the first wave in Victoria when we were coming out, but we, we'd seen the wave turn and... If, it's, if I have any claim to fame, it's probably that I'm the first and have been continually to predict when we hit plateaus or we were turning um, our case numbers around. And, um, and I just remember writing a piece, it was an opinion piece, invited opinion piece on at that time and talking about the fact that we had to keep going with all our, our good behaviours because that was going to get us off this curve even faster. And, and so I would use analogies like... You know, we're now pedalling, but we're pedalling downhill and the wind's on our back. And you're just trying to kind of help people dig deep and find that last bit of resolve but understand that public health interventions still matter, in fact, in some ways more than, more than ever. The Institute for Health Transformation specialises in untangling complex health challenges to make better health and wellbeing easier for everyone to achieve. Our researchers are renowned for their expertise in co-designing, testing and evaluating real-world solutions with lasting impact. If you're interested in joining our world-class team of researchers, visit iht.deakin.edu.au. So I'm just going to shift a little bit to something that you both mentioned earlier on in the conversation around um, trust and then social media. So obviously social media is not necessarily known for its trustworthiness sometimes, although it can be, um, they, there can be benefits to it as well. Um, so it allows for fast-paced, high-volume dissemination of information to large audiences. What have been the benefits and challenges from your perspective with social media during the pandemic? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I can start this because I'm brand new to Twitter and that has been my big um, step forward during the pandemic. Um, and, I, and I found it a really, and I'm still learning about it, it does not make sense to me even um, a year in. And, um, you know, on the one hand, there are amazing science communicators on Twitter who are brilliant at distilling complex information into really clear messages. And then on the other hand, um, Twitter can be totally irrational and tribal and um, free of nuance. And so, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a love-hate relationship that I have with Twitter already. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't know, um, you know, if you put a balance sheet where it sits I still I'm still sort of trying to trying to work it out um, but I guess like all tools it's the way that it's used and the way that you use it um, and so you know I, th I think it does serve a really important role and it seems to be 
the preferred medium for a lot of journalists. And I, I think I guess a lot of that is the timeliness, how quickly people respond and how quickly you can sort of have a bit of a litmus, litmus test as to what the mood is in the community. Um, so, you know, it's, it's truly fascinating um, the role that Twitter has played during the pandemic because it has been the go-to medium for a lot of people, um, you know, along with, um, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Um, so you can't ignore it, I guess, is the key message. Um, it is part of the communication landscape um, and it's an important part of it. So I think that also is going to be one of the lessons that um, we have to grapple with as science communicators as to the extent to which we engage with Twitter and um, also maybe even advocating for Twitter to be a safer place for people and, um, you know, less less conducive to the spreading of misinformation and, and they're bigger issues, I guess, for the whole of the planet really to address how we stop that pipeline of misinformation. But, um, yeah, it's a difficult one. I think... Twitter as an individual writing in an, an you know anonymous way and being part of this general conversation and sharing of information is different to someone who is writing in a professional capacity that comes with not just gravitas and waiting so you know your your professionalism your knowledge your implied experience and the organization you represent but also something else about you know this being around messaging in, in a different kind of way. So I do think we have to look to that. I focus on LinkedIn. Um, I had to, you had to choose. You just couldn't do everything with the amount of um, broader uh, mainstream media doing, we're doing as well. And that was interesting. I chose that because you could, you had a bigger platform to write. So I could interpret data. I could present some of my results. I could talk about scientific papers and take that, you know, to a more, you know, expanded explanation. I mean, apart from the pylons, actually the rest of it was really important for us to be have a handle on as well. You had to know what those extreme views were being were presenting to stay in the middle and stay well in the middle and to try and keep conversations open with all corners. You had to know what their thinking was. And I do think that that was important and it made it hard because you couldn't just, it'd be easy just to shut it down and say, I'll just work with media and stay oblivious. But in fact, I thought we actually had an obligation to stay connected and, you know, you have to be a bit selective and, as I said, you just ignore pylons. But at the same time, yeah, you have to really understand the broader population. Otherwise, you end up doing the same. You're talking to your own tribe rather than trying to keep conversation doors open. Yeah, that's a really important point. Just before we bring this conversation to a close, I wanted to ask one more question of you while I have you here. Um, although no one wants to see another pandemic and thankfully... Um, Many experts are now, including yourself, working on um, any future pandemics and strategies thereof. I just wanted to ask, are we becoming prepared for any future pandemics? The thing about this pandemic is it has um, it's been a stress test really for us in terms of our preparedness um, for pandemics and um, it was a great revealer. We had probably um, from the time that Catherine and I trained as field epidemiologists, we've been predicting a pandemic and it hasn't quite happened. We've had, I mean, we had SARS 
um, and we've had things that look like they were going to be big um, pandemics, but they've we've been able to bring them under control and they've kind of fizzled out. Um, so this is human nature. Um, you know, as that threat becomes more abstract, our attention was diverted to other areas and a lot of pandemic planning kind of got pushed to the side. Um, and we were found wanting and we were found wanting for a couple of reasons, I think. Firstly, we had our blinkers on and we always thought the next pandemic was going to be an influenza pandemic, which has quite a different epidemiology to a coronavirus um, pandemic. Um, and we, we just... Um, we, we just, our level of preparedness and alertness and awareness of this had kind of just continually been pushed to one side. So, you know, if there, there is, um, you know, a positive from the last very challenging two and a half years, um, I, I think we understand a lot of our um, gaps um, and we understand I think the public has an awareness of public health and epidemiology and certainly of pandemics and epidemics and infectious diseases. So, you know, I think we're going to be well-placed to um, deal with the next pandemic. On The one proviso is that, um, you know, the world moves pretty quickly and, you know, we've got lots of other things going on in the world right now, including all the economic issues. We've really got to focus and make sure we learn the lessons from the last two and a half years. And we've got to be really disciplined in the way that we um, keep our attention towards filling these gaps and making sure public health has the, um, the resources and the, the prominence that it deserves. So, you know, it's, it's a hard lesson to learn, um, but hopefully we're going to be better prepared for the next pandemic because of this one. What I found interesting in the waves, and it's been a bit of a thing of mine, was trying to say as soon as you come off a wave, everyone's exhausted, but you actually have to invest in, in the next step. What have we learnt now and what in particular can we put in place in the way of prevention? A lot of the reductionist thinking that went on and analysis that went on, particularly with high-level modelling, belied the complexity of pandemics in terms of where risk sits in the community. And we know from now this experience where our, our most vulnerable points are as a, as a human population. And it's in those parts of our big cities in particular where you have people who have the greatest exposure to other people through casual work, who also live in complex, really well-connected, um, rich communities that actually mean not only do they have a greater chance of having the virus, but then of passing it on to a large number of people really efficiently. And our modellers, it took them two years before they could get to a point where they were factoring some of that nuance again into our modelling. But we didn't actually learn as much from that even in the time as we, we hoped. We, we in Victoria ended up with the smallest gaps between low SES and high SES neighbourhoods in terms of vaccination uptake and between metro and regional, which is fantastic. That's a good news story. But some of our students, you know, are working with us on the data and looking at actually the timeline. And in fact, the places where you know the virus will land first because you've got that high exposure risk weren't the areas that had the highest vaccination rates early. So it's going from a response thinking to a prevention thinking. So we need to be able to do that better locally. We need to embed now our understanding of the vulnerable communities, which makes that measures all our vulnerability, 
into the way we think about our public health infrastructure as well as, you know, detection and response. And we've, we've come a long way with our regional public health units in Victoria, both in metro and in regional areas. So that's a massive change for us that will give us different potential. But we need to keep all of that working in such a way that that's a much better platform. But finally, globally also, and the WHO um, has now restructured its committee structures. So again, where we're working with current committees, but actually moving along with talk about, you know, a global pandemic treaty that is about giving more clout to those international conversations. It's about putting as much emphasis on early detection and prevention before that, rather than purely focusing on response. So if we can get that right, if we can do that locally and globally, and actually have the the prominence, the resourcing built around those surveillance systems that allow us to both um, understand our risk and, and moderate risk before we even have a problem with it, and to go the next step along with surveillance to say, well, if a risk emerges, to manage that better globally because we're taking a nuanced approach, then I think that's the greatest lesson we can take from this pandemic. On that positive note, many thanks to you both for sharing your valuable insights with us today, Catherine and Hassam, and for working tirelessly to bring the community information in a form that we can actually understand. Uh, through this, you've lifted our confidence and brought us comfort trying to navigate these uncertain times. Thanks. It's been great. Thank you. And thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by Deakin University's Institute for Health Transformation. Health shouldn't be hard. And every day, the Institute for Health Transformation is working to make better health and well-being easier to achieve. If you've enjoyed this episode, follow us on Twitter at IHT underscore Deakin.